Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, or really 17 through 23. This will be our second and final look at these verses. We look at Jesus' response to those who wanted to be first. We'll read from 17 to 23. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he'll be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. But Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In my last sermon, we simply analyzed the request made by the mother of the sons of Zebedee without giving any thought to Jesus' response. And as we saw, this request has a lot of practical lessons. Uh, We broke verses 20 through 21 down into three points. They're calloused appeal. because It's a calloused appeal because right after Jesus told them of the rejection and the suffering and even death that he would experience, that right after that, that James and John are conspiring with their mother to help them jockey for position within the kingdom. That's messed up, isn't it? We learn not to be that guy. We want to be compassionate and considerate people, not jerks, self-obsessed jerks who are only concerned about our own stuff that's going on with us. In their defense, Jesus had told them several times of his coming suffering, and it seems like that they took it as figurative language that simply meant getting to the throne would be difficult and would entail uh, suffering on all of their parts. But nevertheless, they asked no clarifying questions and instead came to Jesus with their calculated approach. Their mother, Jesus' aunt, which we pointed out last week, uh, she came with them and bowed down before Jesus and asked manipulatively, Teacher, will you do for us whatever we ask? And wanted a blank check promise. Um, but what did we see from Jesus? Well, from their calloused appeal, he gave them a composed answer. He simply said, What do you wish? Don't you just love that from King Jesus? He's meek. Not being offended by their calloused appeal and even asking them what they want, even though they were kind of self-obsessed jerks. Like Jesus, we must be composed in spirit enough not to be offended by that guy when he inevitably says something calloused and self-absorbed. In addition to this sinless posture, Jesus also felt no obligation. He was uh, not some pride-filled, favor-throwing leader making unwise promises before he even heard their requests. 
In our desire to be liked, we have to make certain that the requests made of us by those that we love are in line with God's will before we commit. And then lastly, we considered their appeal itself. It was a for a conferred authority. They wanted to sit on the right hand and on the left in the kingdom. Everywhere you look in ancient times, being at the right hand and left hand of a king was about uh, position and authority, and that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted the most prominent, powerful, and prestigious positions in Jesus' coming kingdom. To their credit, this shows that they anticipated Jesus' ultimate victory. We, we celebrated them for that, didn't we? Yes, Jesus is going to be rejected, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, but he's going to raise again. And he told, he told them that they would gain, that when he gained the throne, that they would sit on 12 thrones with him. So their response is, well, about the placement on the thrones. When we get to sit on those 12 thrones, can we have the two best ones? So there's something commendable in this contemptible request, but ultimately the problems outweigh the good. We should all be willing to accept positions of authority and responsibility in love and service to others, but there's a huge chasm between the willingness to take positions for the good of others and the grasping after such positions for personal comfort, ease, and prominence. And that's it. That's where we ended the last sermon, mid-narrative. Why would I end a sermon mid-narrative? Well, there was a lot of context to set. There was a lot of practical application to flesh out. But more importantly, in Jesus' answer, we have, a, we have difficult interpretive choices to make that carry huge theological and eschatological implications. And on top of that, it'll be clear to some of you that my positions on these issues have changed over the years. I don't change my positions quickly and I don't take those changes lightly just expecting you to blindly follow me. I don't want that. When I change an emphasis in my preaching, I'll explain the change and I'll show you exactly why I changed it. That'll be the goal of my sermon today as we look at Jesus' response to those who wanted to be first. Today we will add two points to those previous three. Jesus says they have a confused assumption, either about the nature of the kingdom or what it will take to gain the kingdom. And then he corrects that misconception. So we'll consider this confused assumption, and then we'll see this correction applied to their, their misunderstanding. But before we even address the nature of this confused assumption, it's worth pointing out that Jesus addresses more than one person here. Look at verse 22. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. In the English this isn't very clear, but in the Greek those are plural. In, in, in southern English it would be very plural too. We need an uh, Appalachian version of the Bible. Uh, y'all don't know what y'all are asking for. That's, what, that's, what's, that's what's being said here. What does that point out to us? That even though the mother of Zebedee was the one that came and bowed down and made the request, she was asking on behalf of all three of them. And Jesus took it as coming primarily from James and John, right? Because he asked them, are you willing to drink the cup? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? So that, just to show once again that this is a request. It's from her, but it's also from James and John. So his response is to James and John primarily. And he points out he, he, their confusion is asserted by Jesus, that they don't know 
or understand what they're asking. They don't comprehend the nature of their own request. We'd be wise before we ask God to do something to make sure we understand the nature of our own request, wouldn't we? You ever pray prayers that in hindsight you look back on them and you say, Wow, I sure am glad God didn't answer that because that was really stupid. Um, that's clear that they didn't understand the nature of their own request. But now we have to ask, in what way did they not understand their own request? Uh, I really only see two possible ways they could be misunderstanding this request that they're asking. Do they not understand the suffering that they must experience in order to gain these positions at the right and the left? Admittedly, that first option is how I had always taken it in the past. I've even preached it here, cited this text and said that's that's the thrust. Uh, it, it was my default reading. I took this text to be warning them, do you want to sit on my right hand and my left hand? Then get ready because you'll participate in my sufferings first. The other option is that they don't understand how the kingdom of God will look once it's established. Thus meaning that the request is a foolish request. That you, you, What you're asking isn't even how these things are going to work. Which one of these options is correct will greatly impact how we understand the nature of the kingdom of God and the place of suffering within it. We don't want to underemphasize the role of suffering in the life of the Christian, but you know what else we don't want to do? We don't want to overemphasize the role of suffering in the life of the Christian. We don't want to do either one. Is suffering a universal and eternal essential part of the Christian experience? and thus to be desired, expected, and accepted as normative throughout time? Or is suffering a result of a sinful world and the presence of this suffering is to be opposed, prayed against, and increasingly rolled back as the kingdom expands and fills the earth? Which which one's right? Because those are two completely different understandings of the nature of the kingdom of God and of the role of suffering. You see how much this matters? You get this wrong, and you're, you're landing at two versions, two entirely different versions of the Christian experience. So, let's think through the rest of this text to determine which of the two fits better and discern what Jesus is getting at. What does Jesus say immediately following his assertion that they don't know what they're asking? Well, he does call them to contemplate their commitment. He asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. For years this next statement led me to take the text to be saying that the disciples didn't understand that the path to glory was necessarily through suffering. I rightly understood that to drink the cup meant to drink the full measure of something leaving nothing. It was a common expression that meant to stay, to, to stay with something to the end, to endure all the way to the limits, whatever the costs. The disciples may have sidestepped what Jesus had just told them about his suffering in 18 and 19. Look at the flow of this. In 18 and 19, he tells them, We're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles and mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day, he'll be raised up. They ignored those heavy words and asked for their prominent positions. But Jesus took them right back to the commitment that it would take to make the kingdom a reality. Jesus' kingship was intimately tied with suffering. Jesus had to suffer. 
It was through the cross that the throne would be achieved. The concept of the cup is used in the, in the Old Testament in three ways. Usually it's a metaphor for judgment. You'll find it demoting, denoting the punishment of the wicked, drinking the cup of the wrath of God. You've been wicked, so you're going to get the, the wrath of God poured out on you. That's usually how it's used in the Old Testament. But sometimes it's a metaphor for the suffering of God's people. I've got these verses in your text. You can look them up on your own. I decided not to read them. And sometimes it's even a metaphor for blessing. Well, in, with Jesus, isn't it glorious that we see all three of these things? That was it, a, was it judgment for wicked deeds that was poured out on Jesus? It was. It wasn't His, but it was judgment for wicked deeds that was poured out on Jesus. That, that He became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. That cup was the wrath of God poured out on Christ for the sins of the world. Was it a metaphor for the suffering of God's people because He was the sinless Lamb of God? He had done no sin. There was no deceit found in His mouth and He suffered unrighteously at the hands of sinners. Yes, that, that Old Testament theme was fulfilled. And in the cross, was it where He received the ultimate blessing because there he gained all authority and power. The throne became his. He became king of kings and lord of lords as the God-man. All three meet in the cross of this cup that Jesus drank. And Jesus consistently uh, used the metaphor of the cup this way. All four Gospels use this phrase, the cup. Jesus referring to the cup as his sufferings and coming exaltation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember when he was being arrested? And uh, No, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's talking about the cup of suffering, right? The cup of the judgment, of the wrath of God that he's about to taste for the sins of the whole world. And then when later when he was being arrested in that same garden, he told Peter, put your sword into your, seat, your sheath, the cup which the Father has for me, shall I not drink it? This was language that Jesus had used regularly about the cup and they understood it as suffering. It was a clear idiom. It was a clear figure of speech that everybody would have understood because it was steeped in Old Testament literature and Old Testament language. So they asked Jesus if they could have the seats of power in the kingdom and Jesus called them back to their commitment to the kingdom. He's saying, I mentioned my sufferings and my coming exaltation and you skip the suffering and go straight to your desire for prominence, power, and prestige. Back up to what you skipped. Are you so committed to the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on the earth that you will follow me in my suffering and death and be willing to yourself suffer and die for it? He is calling them to that. Up to this point, it's looking like what Jesus was saying was, y'all don't know what you're asking for. That you, don't, you don't understand that you're going to have to suffer to get there. But there are some major problems with that interpretation. Because the next thing you see in the text is their capability affirmed. What do they say? When they ask, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, what do they say? They say, we are able. They didn't say, what do you mean by that? They didn't say, let me think about it for a little while. And they didn't say, yes, we'd like a mocha java with a sprinkle of cinnamon. They didn't say any of those three things, did they? They weren't confused about what the cup was. No, they immediately, without hesitation, 
without equivocation and without asking for clarification said, yes, we are able because they did understand that the path to the kingdom would come through their suffering. Of course they did. Why? How do we know that? Because he had told them several times, just read the book of Matthew. It's not like he'd hid anything from them. At the very beginning, in his, in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, his uh, inaugural address to the people, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. He hadn't hid anything from them. He told them that the gate is straight and that the, the way is difficult that leads to life and few there would be that find it. He told them in the missionary discourse with just them there to beware of men because they'd be handed over to courts and they'd be scourged in their synagogues. And in, uh, that brother would betray brother to death and the father his child and children would rise up against parents and curse them and cause them to be put to death. And that they would be hated by all men because of his namesake. That they would be persecuted from city to city. That the disciple was not above his master. That if the disciple became like his teacher and his teacher suffered, that they would call him Beelzebul. How much more would they do than the members of his household? And that he that does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. These are all things they've already heard. And then right after Jesus, Peter's great confession, he says, If any of you wish to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if, I, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul and finishes it up? With truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. Some of you will die, but some of you will see what you're waiting for. And so He has told them several times, and they answer His question here with, We are able. And there's other more clear phrases that show they clearly understood what they were getting into. When uh, Jesus was going to go back into Judea, the disciples said to Him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And He explains, well, Lazarus is dead. I'm going to have to go there and raise him because I love Lazarus, and they need me. And what do they say? Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus... Thomas gets a bad rap, by the way, doubting Thomas. This is Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. Was he ready? Did he understand? Of course he did. And in Matthew 26, 33 through 35, when right before, you know, just later in this week, basically the, a week after what we're looking at in this text, he says, Truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, he tells Peter. And Peter says, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. They knew that the path would come through suffering. This is the first reason I now reject my previous position that Jesus was saying they didn't understand that the road to the kingdom would be filled with suffering. These disciples recognized the need to make sacrifices in order to attain their goals. I mean, they, but they, they did have it wrong. Because when Jesus was being arrested and there's Roman soldiers all around, what did Peter do? Gets a sword out and attacks Malchus, cuts his ear off. Jesus stays him. No, Peter. Reattaches Malchus's ear. Says, put your sword into your sieve. The cup that the Father has for me, shall I not drink it? And what do the disciples do then? They leave. They fled in verse 56 of that same chapter. Right after they said they'd die with him, they now flee, bewildered and confused. 
They don't get something. An understanding. So it can't be that they didn't understand suffering. They just thought, we're probably going to have to fight, and in the fighting, we're going to have to suffer some losses. Because any war you have, you're going to suffer some losses. But in the end, we're going to gain the kingdom. So it's not that they didn't understand suffering would be necessary. It's that they didn't understand how the kingdom of God would look once it was established. Our last point only further supports that conclusion and gives us a little bit of clarity concerning the answer, a clarity that will become even more clear as we press forward in the Gospel of Matthew and consider it in light of the totality of Scripture. So let's turn our attention now to the correction applied in verse 23. He said to them, this is Jesus' response, they say, yes, we are able. And he says, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right, and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In verse 23, Jesus confirms one thing and contradicts the next. So let's look at the confirmation first. My cup you shall drink. What horrifying encouragement that is, isn't it? They know what the cup is. It's the cup of suffering. They will bear Jesus' reproach. They will endure everything He told them that they would endure in the missionary discourse. How, you might ask, is this an encouragement? Because what we know about suffering is still true. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to all those that love him. (coughs) Reward in heaven. Now, is heaven and the kingdom of heaven the same thing? No, but in heaven they'll have reward. And, our, and the words of Peter. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus ensured them that he knew their faith was genuine. That's why it's a horrifying encouragement. He knew that they would endure to the end. And he had already told them, they that endure to the end are the ones that will be saved. It's not that they wouldn't momentarily stumble. They both fled when Jesus was arrested. At least John returned and was there for the crucifixion. But after the resurrection, they truly understood and they'd never be scattered by their fear again. And they would drink the cup of suffering. And great would be their reward in heaven. James was the first apostle to be martyred. In Acts 12, 2, it tells of his martyrdom. And John ended his life uh, as a condemned exile in the island of, on the island of Patmos. They indeed did share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Just as Jesus said, they drank of Jesus' cup. Not fully and completely like Christ, but really and truly. They could never atone for the sins of the world, but they did share in Jesus' suffering. Remember in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That there's, in, in some way we do suffer because of the sinful world and share the sufferings of Christ. Not in an atoning way, but in a way where the wrath of this wicked world, we still experience it in some sense. They suffer righteously like Christ did, and it finds favor with God. It is better if God should will it, 1 Peter 3, 17-18, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, 
and they received a blessing through their suffering. That momentary light affliction still does, this is still true, produce for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. All of these things are absolutely true. They would suffer, and great, great would be their reward in heaven, and they would receive glory in the resurrection. Yes and amen, but as I emphasized in the explanation of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, the kingdom of heaven is not heaven, nor the resurrected state. When it talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's talking about the expansion of the rule and reign of God on the earth. Do we get reward in heaven, we that die, before that's fully realized? Yes. Will we receive a better resurrection if we suffer in that? Yes. But is that the same thing as what the kingdom of God looks like as it expands on the earth? No. You see that? That's important. Their misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God becomes more clear in Jesus' contradiction. He corrects the... He, he applies this, he, uh, this... He confirms their understanding that they would suffer, but then he contradicts their understanding of the kingdom. But to sit on my right and my left, which is positions of authority, that's how it's always understood, to rule on the earth over kingdoms, to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Before I get into how the disciples misunderstood the kingdom, I want to point out another obvious thing I misunderstood about the text. It really blows my mind that I missed this because it's so obvious. I used to take the flow of this text as the disciples, they asked to sit at the right and the left hand. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. That entails suffering. If you want that position, are you really ready to suffer to get it? And then Jesus affirms that they will suffering... I mean, they will suffer, but here's the big breakdown. They will suffer, but not get the positions at the right hand and the left hand at which, for which they're asking. Oh, you want to sit at the right hand and the left hand of God? Well, you're going to have to suffer, and you're going to suffer, but you're not going to get it sit at the right hand and the left hand because I can't give that to you. You see the breakdown? It couldn't be what I always thought it was. It's nonsense. It's, it cannot possibly be that. Um... Jesus cannot be saying suffering is the condition to get that for which you're asking because he tells them that they will suffer but that the positions at his right hand and left hand are not his to give. So let's return to the two possible interpretations of y'all don't know what you're asking for. Possibility one, the suffering they must experience in order to gain these positions at the right and the left hand, that one's eliminated, isn't it? It's gone. And that only leaves us with how will the kingdom of God look once it's established, thus making the request a foolish request. You don't understand the nature of the kingdom of God. You've got it wrong. The picture you've got of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like, you've got it gone. You've got it wrong. That has to be it, doesn't it? So let's consider their misunderstanding and how we can avoid it. The disciples clearly thought that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and after a difficult struggle filled with losses... He would ultimately gain the throne. And what would this throne be like? Well, they, they believed it would be universal and never-ending. Isn't that what Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man, implied? Remember in Daniel 7, we've hit it so many times as we've gone through Matthew because Son of Man, he uses it so many times in Matthew. Behold, with the clouds, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's the he, you're the son of man, you're the one that's going to bring this in. So they thought, they expected 
the end of all other earthly dominions and powers at once. That's what they thought was going to happen. Once he was on the throne, they understandably assumed that he would appoint whomever he wanted to whatever positions he wanted to appoint them. Because what king doesn't have the authority to say who will sit on his right and on his left? Any king has the power to grant positions within his kingdom. Well, every president appoints his own cabinet, right? Except for Joe Biden, his handlers do it. But, you know, other ones, right? If you're the position of authority, you have the authority to appoint people under you to whatever positions that you want to. They understand, understandably, that's what they thought. And James and John wanted that to be them. That that was not what the kingdom of heaven would look like. Jesus would not be on a physical throne in Jerusalem. But he would be at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And they would have authority on 12 metaphorical thrones judging the whole earth. No, the 12 tribes of Israel, which we see throughout the book of Acts based on their response to Jesus. And those that would receive him got out of Jerusalem and weren't destroyed. And those that would not receive Christ ended up, most of them destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They had it all wrong. The kingdom would not appear immediately. And they should have known that. Luke 19, 11 through 12, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went, to t went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. This is also right before he's about to be crucified. Because they supposed that the kingdom of, of God was going to appear immediately. And he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So he tells them, I'm going to go away and then return. It's not going to happen at once. Now, also in Matthew, remember the par uh, in the kingdom parables that uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in the field. And it's smaller than all the other seeds, but it gradually grows. And when it's full grown, it'll be larger than all the garden plants and become a tree so that the birds of the air would nest in its branches. And he spoke another parable that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman hid in three pecks of flour until it all was leavened. And these point to it being gradually blessing all the nations and gradually saturating the entire earth. If you've not listened to those two sermons when I handed those texts, I was tempted to re-preach them, but I don't have time to do that. Go back and listen to them. So it wouldn't be immediate. <coughs> and it wouldn't be Israel-centric. That's another one that really threw them off. There's not going to be a throne in Jerusalem that Jesus is literally sitting on in the flesh and blood with us 12 disciples sitting all around him with two of us maybe having more prominent seats in, Jer in, in Jerusalem with uh, Israel being the dominant nation in all the earth. Nope. They carried that even past the resurrection. Remember in the book of Acts, after Jesus had raised, Acts 1, 6-8, they asked Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria going out, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You're taking my kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's not that you're here on a throne that I'm here and you're reigning with me. No, you're going to be my witnesses taking this message to disciple all the nations out. In Acts 1, 6-8, he's clearly borrowing from the language of Daniel 2, 20-21. I want you to turn with me to Daniel 2 because I think this sheds light on this, this concept of what the kingdom will be like. 
for what it is on it. Jesus says that he can't give these authority, these positions of authority, these rulers over states and, and areas that that's given by the Father. We see that in Acts 1, that it's not for them to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority of who's going to be rulers and how the kingdom will be established and spread and ruled over. In Daniel 2, 20-21, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. And what does that look like, these times and these epochs? He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And this understanding of to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but is for those that the Father has prepared it. The kings and leaders being removed and established by God is undergirding Jesus' words here that there's not going to be an abolition of all other nations on the whole earth. They're still going to rise and fall just like they always have. Whoever is ruling on the earth, that's still going to keep carrying on even after the kingdom's established and I'm at the right end of the throne of God. But what you're going to do is you're going to go make disciples of all the nations until all the nations are Christianized. That's the goal. That's how the kingdom would spread. Not one Jesus ruler and then ruling over everybody with a physical kingdom there. No, Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God with the message of the resurrected Christ going and making disciples of all the nations until the nations are Christianized and then they get Christian rulers. And it would... would that, would that, is that happening? It has happened. That's, what, that's the history of Western civilization. We're in a lull, but guys, God ain't done yet. He ain't done yet. The kingdom will move forward. Continue reading with me in Daniel 2, 31-35. With the arrival of the kingdom of God, these nations would be conquered by Christ and the gospel. Daniel 2, 31-35. You, O king, are looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. Verse 32, the head, we know this text, don't we, is made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of part iron and part clay. You continued looking until a, until a stone was cut out with, without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so as not a trace of them was found but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth all these kingdoms of the earth they're going to be laid to waste as nothing before him and it will be Christ that is all in all look at verses 44 through 45 in Daniel in these days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will not be destroyed and the kingdom will, will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. And the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Guys, do you believe the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy? I do. 
And it will lay to waste, the, the spread of the gospel will lay to waste all the kingdoms of the earth and Christ will be the great... It will, be, it will, fill, that will be the great stone that fills the whole earth. Look how Jesus returned to this concept in Matthew 21. Turn to Matthew 21. You say, let's tie this together. Matthew 21, 42 through 44. It's where he goes not long after this. In the parable where the slaves are killed and then ultimately the son is killed and the kingdom is going to be taken away from the Jews. This is the, that's the context. Verses 42 through 44. Did you never read in the Scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on, who, on whomever it falls it will scatter them like dust. Do you see what that's alluding to? It's alluding to Daniel 2, 31 through 45, and Psalm 118, 22 through 23. The stone which the builders rejected, the Jews rejected. The Jews, their kingdom first was a Jewish nation. It, they rejected it. It will become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the very stone that will crush the image that will then scatter all the nations like dust and will become the everlasting kingdom. It will be taken away from the Jews who will stumble over the stumbling block of Christ given to a people bearing the fruit thereof, the synagogue replaced with the church, and the church will build the culture that will then usher in the, the, the nations, disciple the nations, leading to Christian rule over the whole earth. That's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for it and participating in it, and y'all are too. That's what we're doing. The Jews would stumble over Christ. And Christ would scatter the sovereign claims of the nations to the dust. We have no king but Christ. The law is king. We, it started. It spread. There's no pope. Jesus is the head of the church. Now there's no king. Jesus is the head of the nations. And all of the nations, the, the people that are rulers of the nations, are ruling under Christ. We established that in the United States. We're trying to give it up, but we ain't going to. We're going to claim it back. And we're going to disciple the nations for that same form of government because it's the only righteous form of government. You can't have righteous government any other way. It's Christ or chaos. 1 Peter 2, 6-10, Peter I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, speaking of the Jews that were blinded at that time. To this doom they were also appointed. But you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We we go and we tell them, Christ is king. Observe all things whatsoever he is commanded. Nations would continue as distinct, but all would be discipled and brought under the rule and reign of Christ. That's the Great Commission. Isn't that where it ends in the book of Matthew? Isn't that where this all goes? All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. Where? In, he in heaven and on earth. And since that's true, go and make disciples of 
all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching who? The nations to observe all things whatsoever Christ had commanded. That's our goal and we will win. We have to get these pessimistic, defeatist ideas out of our mind. Our goal is not to merely exist and be happy in a fallen world full of suffering. Do we need to be happy in a fallen world full of suffering while we're waiting on it to be rolled back? Yes. But it's not just, well, this old world's just this old world. You've got to live in this old world. It's really bad. But, you know, the key is just be happy no matter what. And it's always going to be this way. No! Get it out of your head! Stop! Our goal is not merely to exist and be happy in a fallen world full of suffering, but to joyfully battle the enemy in order to transform this fallen world full of suffering with the law of God and the gospel. Suffering isn't necessary for all people at all times to the same extent forever and ever, and that's just normative. That's not what we should believe. And we've been sold that bill of goods. So well, Matt, how do you know it's not? Because I think it is. Well, Paul told Timothy to pray for kings and all who were in authority. Why? So that we might lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. Well, wait a minute. If suffering leads to great glory, why would we want to lead tranquil and quiet lives with all dignity? That would rob us of glory. We shouldn't pray that. Paul, you're giving us bad advice under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No. We want to pray for the kings and those that are in authority that they will become Christians and rule in Christian ways so that Christians can live lives that are tranquil and quiet in all godliness and dignity. Not being persecuted. Well, I'm glad persecution's back. Shut up! I mean, I've heard people say that. I'm so glad persecution's back. It's going to appear... Shut up! That is a godless, wicked way to think. I'm glory. I'm so glad you're getting to suffer and having to suffer. No. When we endure suffering, do we do it with joy and say, God, you've ordained this and I'll do it with joy? Absolutely. But we don't seek positions of authority and grasp them. We take them if they come. And we don't seek suffering. But we take it if it comes. And we trust it all as from the hand of the Lord. And we concentrate on, I'm going to be so committed to this kingdom. I'm going to do the right things. And whatever comes to me, I'm going to receive it as from the hand of the Lord. And if I have to drink the cup of suffering, that's fine. And if I drink the cup of suffering and it leads to me having positions of prominence here on earth where I rule for the good of others and serve through positions, fine. But if I suffer and even die, you know what? Fine. But I'm going to do the right thing because Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord and whatever happens comes through His hands. He raises up kings, He lowers them. But in the meantime, what do I do? I do what God says. And I trust in Christ. Also, 2 Thessalonians 1-3. through Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it also did with you, and that we'll be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. We want, to re- we want to pray that they get rescued? Well, shouldn't we pray that they get tortured because they'll get more glory that way? No. No, we shouldn't. So we want to build cultures where it's not scary. Where you don't have to beware of men because they're going to hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. We want to build those cultures. And guess what? In America, we did for a long time. 
How many of you have been betrayed by your brother to death? Is this a universal thing? You'll be betrayed by your brother to death. How many of you have, have that happened to any of you here? You've been betrayed by your brother to death? Nope. No, it's almost like Jesus said that to the disciples in the missionary discourse to the disciples and that's not to you. If it does happen to you, do you endure it? Yeah. But is that to be universal and just, hey, that's just part of the Christian life? No. We want to create cultures where that doesn't happen, don't we? Of course we do. We were in a culture where you weren't hated by all because of Christ's name. As a matter of fact, it wasn't too long ago where if you were a pastor, you'd get a free haircut just because you were a pastor. I want that back. I grew my hair back anticipating it. We want to, we, we've not been persecuted city to city. We don't live in that kind of culture right now. Why? Because we've built something better. Are we, are we losing it because we became defeatists who don't fight anymore? Yeah. But it's not universal. If you live in a... If it's our desire to see the whole... Everybody around us saved, when they're all saved, are they going to keep persecuting you? No. Do we think we can and will disciple the nations? When we do, will they still persecute us and kill us? No. Of course not. And none of us have taken a cross. Are we willing to die if we have to? Yeah. You're not persecuted because somebody unfriended you on Facebook. Just letting you know. Or, or because you got ratioed on Twitter. That's not persecution. It was Christians who abolished the evil of chattel slavery. William Wilberforce, read about him. He had, well, hey, you know what we need to tell those old slaves that are getting mistreated and abused and sold like property and perpetually enslaved? You know what we need to tell them? Hey, it's just part of being part of the kingdom. You're just going to have to suffer. Suck it up, buttercup, get over it. We ain't supposed to try to change things down here. Of course not. We battled against it. And you know who won? The Christians did. It was Christians who invented hospitals. It was Christians who implemented limited government where people could actually thrive and excel instead of socialism and communism that had the government as Lord and kept people and crushed people down. It was Christians who built these things. Christians who battled against suffering, who hated the suffering in the world and fought against it with the law and the gospel. And it's Christians who are waking up and beginning to fight again. Because of our neglect, we find ourselves in negative world. We were in positive world, we went to neutral world, and we're getting back to negative world. The blessings of cultural Christianity are a fading memory. I, I hear people, I'm glad cultural Christianity is going away. Read the uh, Gramsci Coalition, I mean the Gospel Coalition, and, and you'll hear stuff like that. Cultural Christianity is a blessing. Well, in that you'll have false converts, yeah? And I'd rather have false converts than people trying to mutilate their children and doing infanticide, wouldn't you? Cultural Christianity. From cultural Christianity, I can preach the gospel and say, hey, you're still a sinner and you need Jesus. These crazy people that are mutilating children and, uh, and killing babies, you can't reason with them. We will immediately regain. We will not immediately regain seats of authority sitting at the right hand and the left hand of Christ. It's unlikely anytime soon. But I ask you, I ask you this. It's very relevant again. It's becoming increasingly relevant. Are you able to drink the cup that Christ drank? Whether you ever live to see these wonderful, the free haircuts coming back. Whether you ever live to see the blessings again. 
Will you do the right things and suffer for it if you have to for a time because it will not be in vain? And we will, and on the long haul, doing the right things, discipling our children, not letting the godless do it. We do it ourselves and disciple them in the way they should go. Are you willing, are you able to drink the cup that Christ drank? That's our question. Are we so committed to the truth that we will suffer for it now with no prospects of earthly dominion in our immediate future because we know over time we will bear the fruit of the kingdom and we will create godly culture and God will give us the godly leaders that we desire for our progeny. Amen, we do. If God grant we reign, we reign for Him. If God grant that we suffer, we suffer with Him. And we rest assured that the reward is worth sacrifice. Kind, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for Your truth. We thank You for Your kingdom, the blessings that we've received from it. Lord, we repent of the things that we've accepted and the way what we've given up, that we've stopped proclaiming Your truth, that we've forgotten it. We're like Josiah, the, the book of the law being lost and rediscovered. That we, and then we... I, Lord, I, I pray that being embarrassed of what Your Word says and Your law says, that would be a million miles away from us as Your people. That we would stand on it and we would defend it because it's so much wiser than what they call the wisdom of man. God, I pray that You will give us success. Lord, in the meantime, we have nothing to do except for say, Lord, we've been uh, cowards at times. Lord, we've been marked by sin. We've been in rebellion. We've been in willful ignorance and unwillful ignorance. We've not studied like we should. We don't know what we should. We should be so much farther along or the ages we are than we are right now. We are guilty. If judged, we'd be damned. We thank you that Christ was slain on our behalf. We cleave to that hope and that promise. Lord, we thank you that he is our great high priest and our king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.